So 1 Corinthians 16.12, now concerning the collection for the saints, as it is given orders to the churches of Galatia, so you must also on the first day of the week let each one of you lay something aside, uh, storing up as he may prosper, that there be no collections when I come. So we have not taken a collection here in two years. (laughs) So when COVID hit, we stopped passing the basket, okay? And we didn't ask for money. You know, we don't have, we don't ask for money here. But yet, God has provided continuously. And he has provided more abundantly than we ever could have imagined. And that is from the faithful people who you, you drop, you know, your check in that basket in the back or you were sending your money in through Tithely. So those baskets are still going to be available and Tithely is still available to you. But I don't know about you, I miss having a collection and the basket coming before my family and me putting in my tithe. Okay, I want to just say that, that, that I miss it. It's, it was a major part. It was 38 years. I've been walking with the Lord for 40 years and being a faithful steward and giving my tithes to the Lord, writing out the check every morning. I usually do it on Sunday morning and then bring my check and I drop it in the basket when the basket passes me. So I miss that. And I think some others here in the congregation and the elders and the deacons this week were saying they miss it. So this isn't about us asking for, for more money this isn't about us, you know, twisting your arm about anything. This is just giving you the opportunity. If you want to continue to use the boxes in the back, that's fine. Uh, if you want to continue to use Tidely, that's fine. But we want to give you the opportunity in a time, really, of sacred worship. And if you understand that, that really the depth of what it is to give your tithes to the Lord, you're giving yourself to the Lord. There's an old story about an Indian in Idaho who went to an all-white church, and he wasn't welcome. He was dressed in rags, and all the people were kind of staring at him and saying, what does this Indian have to do, you know, being in our church? And when it was time for the collection, and the basket was being passed around, and it came to him, he stood up, and he said to the usher, a little lower, And the usher lowered the basket. He said, a little lower. And he lowered the basket. And he said, a little lower. And he put the basket on the floor. And the Indian stepped into the basket. And he said, I have no money to give to the Lord. But I give to him myself. And that, that is what we do when we are giving to the Lord in an offering. Right? That tithe. You spend, you spend a week. Right? earning that money, right? You're given, you're given that, that check. Okay, it used to be you were given cash. And when you're placing that money into the basket, you're acknowledging that Jesus is the Lord of your life and you're giving yourself to the Lord. So I don't know about you, I miss it. I miss it. And so we're going to come back and starting as the first week of September, we are going to be taking an offering here, okay, each Sunday. And as the Lord blesses us and hopefully keeps COVID or whatever the heck else is out there away from us, we will continue to do that. Again, I thank you for your faithfulness, which has, I mean, it really has been amazing these last two years. And never having to take an offering or say, give everybody. I'm just so faithful in your giving. And let me tell you, God has blessed our congregation 
abundantly, I truly believe, because of that and all of your faithfulness, okay? So let's go to the Word, okay? Mark chapter 12, verse 13 through 17. Stand with me for the reading of the Word. Title of the message today, we go through the Gospels, okay? We're going through the Gospel of Mark. I'm back here now, verse by verse. Uh, we're going through Leviticus on, um, on Wednesday nights, verse by verse. We preach the entire Word of God. What is Caesar's and what is God's? And I'll tell you, I think it's a fitting message in the time and the current moment that we're living in right here in the United States. So the word of our Lord, Mark chapter 12, 13 through 17. Then they sent to him some of the Pharisees and the Herodians to catch him in his words. And when they had come, they said to him, Teacher, we know that you are true and care about no one, for you do not regard the person of men, but teach the way of God in truth. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Shall we pay or shall we not pay? But he, knowing their hypocrisy, said to them, Why do you test me? Bring me a denarius that I may see it. So they brought it, and he said to them, Whose image and inscription is it? And they said to him, Caesar's. And Jesus answered and said to them, Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. And they marveled at him. Heavenly Father, we bow our hearts, we bow our lives before you. You're the king of our lives. And Lord God, today we acknowledge you as the king of all that we have, of all that we are, of all, Lord God, that we will be. And Lord God, teach us your word as we sit at your feet. Let us hear your voice, and Lord God, may you be glorified in our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. So let me... Let me just say, this is Jesus, okay, being questioned by the Pharisees and the Herodians. This is the last week, his last week. To give, put it in uh, context, it's Wednesday. He has entered into Jerusalem. By the way, he entered into Jerusalem. It was on Monday and not Sunday. So, we, you know, the churches, they celebrate Palm Sunday. It really should be Palm Monday. And if you, you know, get into the Gospels, you'll see that. So he entered into Jerusalem on Palm Monday on Tuesday, he cleansed the temple, okay? He cleansed the temple and really ticked off the Sanhedrin, and that goes for the Pharisees, and that goes for the Sadducees and the scribes. He's infuriated them, and now it's Wednesday. On Thursday, he celebrates the Last Supper. On Friday, he's crucified. On Sunday, he is raised from the dead. So now he is examined. Now you get, into, you get into your Bible in Mark chapter 12, and you can find it in Matthew, and you can find it in Luke as well. Jesus is now on Wednesday being examined. He's being examined by the Pharisees and the Herodians, which we have in our text here. He is going to be examined by the Sadducees, and then he is going to be examined by the scribes. Does anybody know why this is happening? To fulfill Scripture. Now, Jesus said it over and over again. He came to fulfill the scriptures. In the book of Exodus, chapter 12, verse 5, Your lamb shall be without blemish. A male of the first year, you may take it from the sheep or from the goats. Okay, the Passover lamb. So, what happens here, during the Passover, in the days of Jesus, and I want you to just think about this, how many lambs do you think were slaughtered, okay, sacrificed, during the Passover week in the days of Jesus? 
And by the way, Caesar Augustus took a, actually, he, he took a count, and we, we have the number of how many lambs were sacrificed, and it was about 200,000, 186,000 when Augustus took the count. So people are bringing up their lambs, okay? And the priests would examine the lambs to make sure that they had no blemish. And if they had a blemish, they were rejected. And if you know the little game that uh, the Sadducees were playing, they had inspectors, okay, as people would come into the temple. So you would buy, you would buy a lamb, okay, from a farm, okay, let's say outside of uh, Jerusalem, and you'd pay $20 for it. You'd come to the temple, and you'd bring the lamb, and they'd examine it, and they'd find something wrong with it, even if it was absolutely flawless, And then you had to go in and you had to buy a lamb from the Sadducees and instead of $20, it was $200. Do you understand how Jesus was infuriated by what was going on in the temple? You have turned my father's house right into, which was meant to be a house of prayer, and you've turned it into a business. And so he's infuriated by what's going on. So here, Jesus... The Lamb of God, who came to take away the sins of the world, is now going to be examined for blemishes by the Herodians, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, and the scribes. That's what's happening on Wednesday. So we'll look at next week, where then the Sadducees come and examine him. And then the next week, the scribes come and examine him. Okay, This all, though, happened On the same day, it all happened on Wednesday. So, just to stop for a second and to look at the Sanhedrin, which was made up, again, of Sadducees, Pharisees, and scribes. They hated Jesus. They're plotting against him. They're planning to murder him. They don't have the authority to murder him. Only Rome does. So now they're going to plan and try to trap him in his words for insurrection, for rebellion against the Romans, so that they would then crucify him and get him out of their hair because he is messing with their business, he's messing with their power, he's messing with their fame, and they hate him because he has uncovered their hypocrisy. Because he has uncovered their sin and their pride, their selfishness and their greed, and he is messing with the thing that was the most important thing in their lives, money. So they hate him. So we're going to look at four things, four things in the text, okay? The first, you have the fakes. In verse 13, then they, I just want you to notice that, then they sent to him... Who is they? Very important to understand that. That's the Sanhedrin. Seventy, the seventy elders, okay, of Israel, made up again, primarily of Sadducees. Most people, there were only a few Pharisees, Nicodemus, Joseph of Arimathea, some others. But it was primarily made up of Sadducees. There were some Pharisees, and there were some scribes. And they sent to him some of the Pharisees and the Herodians to catch him in his words. 
Now, the Herodians were followers of Herod, and essentially Herod Antipas, who was the ruler up in the Galilee and the Decapolis. And this is, this is really a, a very awkward alliance, if you understand the Herodians and you understand the Pharisees. The Herodians, essentially, they were the least religious of all the sects in, in, in Israel at the time of Jesus, and the Pharisees were the most religious. The Pharisees were concerned with the law of God. The Herodians, they were concerned with the law of Rome. The Pharisees were devoted to Israel. The Herodians were devoted to Rome. The Pharisees were religious fanatics, and the Herodians were political fanatics. The Pharisees used religion to gain power, and the Herodians used politics to gain power. So they're very, very different, and essentially, really, the Pharisees hated the Herodians, because the Herodians had sided with Rome and the Pharisees hated Rome. But they are the perfect duo to trap Jesus. Because here, if Jesus says, pay taxes to Rome, right, essentially, he is going to be accused, okay, of idolatry. And I'm going to show you that in a moment. If he says, don't pay taxes to Rome, the Herodians are going to run to Pilate and say, right, he's a rebel, they're going to accuse him of insurrection, and he's going to be arrested and he's going to be crucified. They are hypocrites. <laughs> they, they are the ultimate hypocrites. What is a hypocrite? A hypocrite is a person who puts on a false appearance of religion or virtue. And they fake being religious. They fake being pious. They fake being moral. They put on this deeply religious facade, this mask. And that is what the Pharisees and the Herodians and the Sadducees and the scribes, for the most part, they're fakes. And they're all about image. It's, it's all about image. When they, when they pray, the Pharisees, right? They pray to be seen. They pray to be heard. Right in the middle of the marketplace, at certain times of the day, they would pray, and they would stand there in their long robes, and they would pray to be seen. They weren't praying to God. They weren't praying to commune with God. They were just praying to be seen by men. And when they would give, they would blow the trumpet so that people would see that they're giving, so that people would praise them. And when they would fast, right, they'd make themselves look all disheveled. They'd disheveled their hair. They'd make themselves look tired and exhausted. And people would come to them and say, you look so tired, Pharisee. And he would then say, I'm, I'm fasting. I, I haven't eaten in the last two hours. <laughs> all about image. All about image. Nothing about substance. Nothing about character. And you can see this in the church. You see this in the church. I've met people like this in the church. It's all about, it's all about their image, right? They, they, they want to be seen. Hey, I'll say for those of you, I'm not on Facebook, and for those of you who are, are, are Facebook fanatics, sometimes right, I, I hear people show me things, they say things to me, like every time you do a good deed, you put it on Facebook. Well, Jesus said, you've already received your reward, You've got, you've got a dose of Phariseeism. 
You know, I just want to say this to you. When I was a young pastor, and God bless those people who sat under my ministry, some are still here, I wanted to be seen. I wanted to be noticed. I, I wanted people to say, oh, pastor, that was such a wonderful message. Oh, you're such a wonderful man of God. The longer I have walked with the Lord, the less I want to be seen, the less I want to be heard. And that's, that's from my heart. The less, the less I want to be praised or honored because he deserves all the honor and he deserves all the praise. I'm nothing. I am, I am nothing. And he is everything. And I just tell you, it's 40 years and I've gone from the, the beginning of, of, of being a big egotistical person to just decreasing and decreasing and decreasing and coming to a place where I just, I don't want to be seen. May you see Jesus today. May you see Jesus. May you know him. Because seeing me and knowing me is not worth it. <laughs> it ain't going to get you to heaven. God knows. So, again, you see, you see this hypocrisy in the Pharisees. In the Herodians. I'm going to just read to you what Jesus said in, in Matthew 23. The eight woes, and every woe, and woe is like, this is, this is a word of condemnation coming from the Lord. But with each woe came the word hypocrite. And again, you can see, you can see the hypocrisy because they're all about image here. In Matthew chapter 23, 25 through 28. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you cleanse the outside of the cup and dish, but inside they are full of extortion and self-indulgence. Blind Pharisees first cleanse the inside of the cup and dish that the outside of them may be clean also. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you are like whitewashed tombs, which indeed appear beautiful outwardly, but inside are full of dead man's bones and all uncleanness. Even so, you also outwardly appear righteous to men, but inside you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness." Right, it's all, it's all image. They're polishing the outside of the cup, but inside it's filled with dirty coffee grinds. They polish the tomb, but inside it's filled with dead bones. So they hated Jesus because he pulled their masks off and he exposed them. They hated Jesus because he revealed the man behind the curtain. You know, he does that with all of us to bring us to a place of truth. I desire truth in the inward parts that we would just be transparent and honest and not be fakes, frauds. Okay, point number two. The flattery. So they're fakes who come with flattery. And verse 14. And when they had come, they said to him, Teacher, we know that you are true and care about no one, for you do not regard the person of men, but teach the way of God in truth. So they come and they, and they say to him, and they call him Rabbi. And they did not believe he was a rabbi. And then they say, 
you're true. Now, I just want you to stop and, and think of all the things that they called Jesus. And again, this, this, is, this is fakery, this is flattery. When somebody will come to your face, say all kind of kind things to you, but behind your back and in their heart, they think the exact opposite. They called him a liar. They called him a deceiver. They said he was demon-possessed. They called him Beelzebub. They called him a drunk. They called him a sinner. They called him a friend of drunks. They called him a Samaritan. And they did that all behind his back. And now they come to him and they say, Rabbi, you care about no one, right? You do not regard the person of man. By the way, that, that, that is a true statement. They didn't believe that, but that was a true statement. And what it essentially means is Jesus could care less what a person's rank was. Jesus didn't care if you were a priest or a Sadducee or a Pharisee or a scribe. He didn't care if you were rich or you were poor. He didn't care about titles. And that really irritated them because that's what they were all about. They, they were all about titles. They, they were all about their, the, the recognition that was placed upon them as a scribe or a Pharisee, and he didn't recognize them. They were used to being admired. They were used to being praised. So then they say, but you teach the way of God and truth. And again, they did not believe that. He was, again, continuously being called a deceiver and a liar. But they're saying, but, but you teach. You teach the ortho. In fact, the word is ortho. That we get the word orthopedic from. So an orthopedist, what does he do? He straightens out the leg. He straightens out the arm. He straightens out the hip. And, and they're saying, you, you, you teach the straight way. But they didn't believe that he taught the straight way. They believed that he was teaching a crooked way. So these guys, these guys are actors. They're actors. And they hated, I mean, they hated saying these things to Jesus. I mean, they, they, they should have won Academy Awards. For, for their acting in this situation. Because everything that they're saying about Jesus, they believe the opposite. While praising him, their hearts hated him. So they are flattering him. You want to say something about Jesus to learn? Never bow to people's criticism. And never be elevated by people's flattery. Jesus never bowed to criticism. And he was never elevated or fooled by people's flattery. So look at the word, God, the word of God says. A little few things about flattery. Proverbs chapter 29, 5 and 6. A person who flatters his neighbor is spreading a net for him to step into. That's exactly what they're doing. To an evil person, sin is bait in a trap. But a righteous person runs away from it and is glad. So here, here is this excessive, insincere praise, this flattery, and it's designed to trap Jesus. Proverbs 26, 28, a lying tongue hates those it hurts, and a flattering mouth works ruin. They're trying to work ruin and destroy Jesus through flattery. And in, in Psalm 78, verse 36 through 37, here is a prophecy. There are, there are about 300... 360, 70 direct prophecies about Jesus in the Old Testament and the Tanakh. And then you could throw another 50 typologies in there. 
and he came to fulfill them all, right? What did he say? Not, not one, not one jot, right? Not one uh, tittle, not, not one iota, not one little mark will not be fulfilled. He came to fulfill the scriptures, and here's one that's fulfilled. So it says, nevertheless, they flattered him with their mouth. And they lied unto him with their tongues, for their heart was not right with him, neither were they steadfast in his covenant. That was written a thousand years before Jesus walked the earth by Asaph in Psalm 78. But again, it's basically speaking of what we see happening here with the Herodians and with the Pharisees coming and flattering him. Okay, number three. So we have fakes, we have flattery, and now we have a faint. Does anybody know what a faint is? If you've been involved in boxing or the martial arts, even, even football, right? A faint, uh, the definition is a movement made in order to deceive an adversary. So in the, in, in, in the martial arts, okay, you would fake that you're going to kick, person drops their hands, and then you'd maybe step in with an elbow. Boxer, right, he may fake that he's going to throw a left, and then what he does is he basically counters with a, with a right. That's a feint. It's a fake. It's, it's used to distract people from the real issue. And that's what they're doing now. They're fainting. They're, they're trying to trap Jesus. They're trying to deceive Jesus. So Mark chapter 12, verse 14 and 15. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Shall we pay or shall we not pay? So in Jesus' day, Rome, basically, they taxed the people for everything. There was a, a harbor tax. Come into the harbor, you had to pay a tax. There was a city tax at the city gate. There was a border tax. You were taxed for anything you produced, any crops, wheat, or, or you caught fish, or you have livestock. They taxed you for your sales. Every time you'd buy something, you'd be taxed. So they're just taxing the people. And the Jewish people were burdened by this. That's why you see their hatred for Rome and also their hatred for the tax collectors who were Jews who had sided with Rome. And not only could they tax the people for everything Rome wanted, they could tax people for everything that they wanted, and that's why they all became rich. So the calling of Matthew as a tax collector, that was a, that was a big deal. The calling of Zacchaeus down from the tree, that was a big deal. So now, the question, is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Shall we pay or shall we not pay? Now I said to you, again, if Jesus says don't pay... Herodians, they're running to Pilate and saying, insurrection, crucify him. And if he says, do pay, and as I said to you at the beginning of the message, they're going to accuse him of idolatry. So watch what, watch what Jesus does, and I'll explain this to you, verse 15 and 16. But he, knowing their hypocrisy, said to them, why do you test me? And you know, you look at that in the, in the Greek, he's, it's like he's saying it in a weary way. They've been, they've been testing him, dogging him wherever he would go, accusing him. So he says, bring me a denarius that I may see it. So they brought it and he said to them, whose image and inscription is this? And they said to him, Caesar's. Now the, the denarius was a Roman coin that would be used to what was called the poll tax, which the Romans would collect once a year. Okay, just one of many taxes. Who's on the coin? Well, it's Caesar Augustus. And you see the words, the words going around. I'm going to give you 
These are, these are written in, in Latin, and it's Theos Sebastos Kaiser. And what it means is Augustus Caesar is God. Now his son, who is, who is the son? By the way, Augustus is gone. He's dead. And his son now has become king. Who is his son? Tiberius. So Augustus is God to the Romans. Tiberius is the son of God. Who's on the back of the coin? Livia, who was the wife of Augustus and the mother of Tiberius, and what you have there in the writing around the corn is Maximus, okay? It's Maximus Pontiff. That is the maximum priest, supreme priest. Pontifex Maximus. You know, that's the title that's used for the Pope. The supreme, the supreme priest. So, so Jesus here, again, he says, give to Caesar what is God's. And again, if he, right, as, he, as he, he says this, again, to the Jew, this is, is ultimate, right? It's, it would be ultimate idolatry because it violates the first two commandments, so in the first two commandments, in Exodus chapter 20, 3 through 5, you shall not have, oh, sorry, it's, it's, it's second and third, you shall have no other gods before me. Augustus is God to the Romans. You shall not make for yourself a carved image, any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in earth beneath or that is in the water underneath the earth. You shall not bow down to them nor serve them. So here would have been the breaking of two of the commandments. Essentially, it's blasphemy, which is punishable by stoning, by death. So now watch Jesus' answer, the last part of today's message. You have the fakes, you have the flattery, and you have the faint. And now you have the facts. First fact, okay, number one, verse 17. And Jesus answered and said to them, Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. And they marveled. Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's. What is he saying? Pay your taxes. <laughs> Pay your taxes to Rome. Pay your taxes to the government. Some of us right now may not be liking what he said, especially what's going on right now in the government. Right? Just these, these, the insanity of what our tax money is being used for. Things that are just some things incredibly evil. So just a, a few things here. In First Peter chapter 2.13, submit yourselves to the, for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether to the king as the one authority or governors as sent by him, for the punishment of evildoers and the praise of those who do right, for such is the will of God. Who started government? God. Where? Do you know in the scriptures where... In the Table of Nations, in Genesis chapter 10, God formed governments. He ordained governments. And he tells us to, to obey the government. In 1 Timothy 2.1, I urge that entreaties and prayers and petitions and thanksgivings be made on behalf of all men for kings and for all who are in authority so that we may lead a quiet life and tranquil life in all godliness. He calls us to pray for our president for people in Congress, right? Joe Biden, Nancy Pelosi, right? 
He says to, to pray for <laughs> some of you. Having a hard time with this right now, right? You're having a hard time. Do you know, do you know who was ruling when Paul wrote this? Nero. And a short time before him, Caligula. And you want to read, you think, you think our politicians are bad? <laughs> Nero is burning Christians. He's burning Christians all over Rome. He's putting them in the arena. He's, t- he's, he's, he's sewing them into animal skins and having them thrown into the river to drown. So just some, something to, to, I know this isn't easy. I know this isn't easy to swallow, believe me. In, in Romans 13, 1 through 7, let every soul be subject to the governing authorities. For there is no authority except from God, and the authorities that exist are appointed by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authority resists the ordinance of God, and those who resist will bring judgment on themselves. For rulers are not a terror to good works, but to evil. Do you want to be unafraid of authority? Do what is good, and you will have praise from the same. For he is God's minister to you for good. But if you do evil, be afraid, and he does not bear the sword in vain. For he is God's minister, an avenger to execute wrath on him who practices evil. Therefore, you must be subject, not only because of wrath, but also for conscience sake. For because of this, you also pay taxes. Please don't leave. Um, Don't run out right now. Let me finish. (laughs) Because if I was sitting where you are and I was listening, I'd, I'd be ready to bolt. For because of this, you also pay taxes, for they are God's ministers attending continually to this very thing. Render therefore to all their due, taxes to whom taxes are due, customs to whom customs are due, fear to whom fear, honor to whom honor. I want to give you a word, a theological word. I don't know if you've ever heard this before. It is called common grace. God established government. He established nations to rule over the people, to create order, to keep from anarchy, to keep from chaos. You ever hear of Pax Romana, the peace of Rome? By the way, Pax Romana paved the way for the gospel to quickly spread throughout the world, if you know that. But essentially, Pax Romana, they built bridges, aqueducts. I mean, you can go to Israel. We've been to Israel seven times. They take people up to Caesarea uh, and at Caesarea, some of you may remember this, the aqueduct that comes down from the mountains. I mean, it's a really amazing thing. In the first century, these engineers, they were able, Lenny, you probably remember that, they were able to bring water over the course of like tens, you know, 10, 20, 30, 40 miles to bring water to the cities. And uh, so Pax Romana provided, uh, you know, aqueducts. They provided protection, they provided policing, they provided a military presence, they increased essentially the benefits of life, they gave peace to the whole world, essentially the Roman world that surrounded the Mediterranean. And we call that common grace. Do you realize you're here today because of common grace? Why don't you stop and think? When you drove here today, which side of the road did you drive on? The left side or the right side? Well, if, if they didn't have a law that you need to drive on the right side of the road, you know how dangerous it would be driving? How many of you had to go through a stop at a, at a traffic light? Right? There's, there's policemen on the corner to make sure that, that we don't speed. I mean, if there were no speeding laws, 
You'd have people driving around, right, 90, 100 miles an hour, people getting smashed, killed everywhere. That's, that's common grace. Common grace. You're here today because of common grace. Our military providing protection for our nation. But it's designed to protect us from anarchy, from lawlessness, from violence. Some of you are sitting there and saying, hey, well, you know what? It seems like there's no common grace in some of the cities. I agree with you. Because you do have lawlessness. You have anarchy happening. Now, simply, we are to obey the government. We are to pay taxes. What happens when the government oversteps and asks you to do something that violates God's laws? Now you're left with a decision. You have a conflict between God's law and the government's law. And they are in contradiction to each other. What do you do? So look at, at Acts chapter 5, 27 through 29. Peter and John are told, don't preach the gospel. We don't want you to be talking about Jesus anymore. So in verse 27, and when they had brought them, they set them before the council, and the high priest asked them, saying, did we not strictly command you not to teach in this name? And look, you have filled Jerusalem with your doctrine and intend to bring this man's blood on us. Now watch Peter's answer. But Peter and the other apostles answered and said, we ought to obey God rather than man. And that's the choice. That I believe a person who is walking with the Lord in the spirit of God, who is obedient to God, that's the choice they're going to make. Now, it's going to come with consequences. What are the consequences? Persecution. And sometimes martyrdom. You want, to read, you want to read a book by Dietrich Bonhoeffer called The Cost of Discipleship. And he was a, a German preacher, pastor, who, when basically the church, you know, the, the Catholic Church looked the other way to the Holocaust, and for the most part, and the Lutheran Church looked the other way, and Bonhoeffer and a handful of pastors actually were standing up against the Romans. Well, eventually Bonhoeffer was, was arrested and he was put to death, I believe, by Himmler, one of Hitler's one of right-hand men. But he wrote a book along the way called The Cost of Discipleship. I'll tell you, in light of a lot of the pablum that is being produced today in Christianity, books, it's a worthwhile book to read. The Cost of Discipleship. Because when Jesus said, deny yourself, take up your cross and follow me, I know a lot of people think, well, you know, I'm denying myself, I'm taking up my cross, and they think, you know, their cross is their mother-in-law. Or some problem. The cross is death. The cross was death. And all the disciples, the, the apostles, every one of them, with the exception of John, died a martyr's death. But it's just something to, to you know, bring you to a place, maybe some of you wonder, well, he's kind of serious, this guy. This pastor's kind of serious. Well, a lot of that seriousness has come from, I'll tell you, I believe the men who discipled me, who were very serious missionaries, who were preaching the gospel throughout the world and suffered for it, but also these books that I read, and I'll tell you, that made a difference. I still have them in my library. And from reading the scriptures. 
they may have to pay the price if you stand against the government. What was it, the city down in Texas where they, the, the, the council, in Texas of all places, what was the city where they basically said, we're now going to have to look at all the preacher's sermons. What was it? Austin. Austin, Texas. We're going to look over your sermon to see if it's acceptable that you can preach it on Sunday. Guess what happens when that happens here? You can't preach the gospel. That's now where the law has overstepped its bounds. And I think that's the time. Well, let's see. There's going to be disobedience. There's going to be disobedience. And it may cost, right? Persecution, it may cost. It could cost your life. I, I, I honestly believe America could be very close to those days. Okay, that's fact number one. Fact number one. Obey the government, pay taxes, and if they overstep their bounds, then you're going to have to make a choice between God's law and man's law, and it may cost you. Fact number two, he says, and to God the things that are God's. Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. Give the government what you owe them, and give to God what you owe him. What do you owe him? What do we owe God? Who created us? Who sustains us? The very beating of your heart and the functioning of every cell in your body. He sustains you right now. And the God who came to this earth 2,000 years ago and hung on the cross and died for you what do you owe him? Now, Jesus said in Matthew chapter 22, 37 through 38, Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. Love him with everything that is in your mind, that is in your soul, that is in your body. Love him. And if you look at, again, this concept of love, because to a lot of people, I found loving God is, it's mush-mush. We call it sloppy agape. It's touchy-feely. And, and the word for love, agape, is a word of action, it's proactive, it, it's doing, it's not merely feeling. You know, to love God, again, is, is to be obedient to God. It is to keep God first in your life. It is to make Him number one. Look, look at Jesus' words, if you love me, keep my commandments. He said this four times in the 14th chapter of John. He who has my commandments and keeps them, it is he who loves me, and he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and manifest myself to him. Jesus answered and said to him, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him, and we will come and make our home with him. And then the fourth time, he puts it in the negative. He says, He who does not love me 
does not keep my words, and the word which you hear is not mine, but the Father's who has sent me. Love him supremely. What do we owe Jesus? Everything. What do we owe Jesus? Our lives. Listen to this quote. I don't use a lot of quotes outside. You know this. I, I rarely, in fact, use a quote outside of the scriptures. My belief is that the word interprets the word. That's what I, what I basically learned as I saw the way Jesus taught and the book of Acts. And, and you go to Bible school, pastor school, you use it, uh, a verse, and then you use 20 illustrations, and um, then I think it's okay to illustrate. But I believe that the word is the best interpreter of the word. <laughs> Far better than me. But this is, this is a quote, Napoleon Bonaparte. And if you study it, of all people, he, I think Alexander the Great, um, Napoleon, Genghis Khan, they were the greatest conquerors of the world. The greatest conqueror of all is Jesus, who conquers the human heart. But Napoleon said this, after he was locked up and basically exiled, because as across the chasm of 1,800 years, Jesus Christ makes a demand which is beyond all others difficult to satisfy. He asks for that which a philosopher may often seek in vain at the hands of his friends or a father of his children or a bride of her spouse or a man of his brother. He asks for the human heart. He will have it entirely to himself. He demands it unconditionally and forthwith his demand is granted wonderful we may see him in heaven. We may see Napoleon in heaven. I don't, I don't know if I've, I've ever come across a quote by someone, you know, outside of, of people who are, I mean, deeply rooted in Scripture that says it all. He demands something that no one demands or can demand. He demands that we would totally give him our lives. And notice what he says. He uses that the last word. You see that last word there? What's that last word? Want to see somebody struggling to do that? You know, I believe that people who are in the church who have not given themselves and surrendered to the Lord are far more miserable than the people outside the church. I really do believe that. If you've ever been there, you've had that experience. It's, it's when we surrender to him and we make him Right? Truly the Lord and King of our lives. And we begin to really seek to live that out each day. It's a wonderful thing. But not to do that and to know this is an incredibly miserable thing. So what do we owe God? I owe God everything. Give to Caesar what is Caesar's. We leave in this place really quick, folks. It says in the scriptures, our life is a vapor. We leave in here. You know, th this isn't our home. You know, people ask me all the time, well, you're a Republican, right? No, I am a monarchist. I am a monarchist. And people sitting there going, what the heck is a monarchist? A monarchist is a belief, I believe in the monarchy. That when the king comes, he's going to set up his kingdom on earth, and it is the monarchy of all monarchies, and Jesus will rule, and I am a servant of the king. So I am a monarchist. 
not a Republican or a Democrat. Because all this is passing away. There are going to be no Republicans and Democrats in heaven. They're going to be people of the king in heaven who surrendered their life to him as their Lord, as their God, and as their Savior. It's a surrender. Give to Caesar what is God's. Uh, what, give to Caesar what is Caesar's. Give to God what is God's. And people, What's the Christian life, Pastor Frank? Could you give me just the word to describe the Christian life? Can I give it to you? Watch this. The Christian life is a surrender. I surrender to God. I surrender to the Son of God. I surrender to the Spirit of God. That's Jesus' word. Amen? Amen? We'll open up the altars today. You can come forward for prayer as we worship. Come up, bow your life before If you, if you haven't bowed your life before him, and maybe it's been a really long time that you've knelt before the Lord and just said to him, you are the king of my life. And I bow down now and surrender to you. The altars will be open for you to do that. Don't let your pride keep you back. Let this be a day. Let it be a day of revival in your lives. Come up and bow before the king. Lord God, we thank you for your word. We give you praise. Lord Jesus, they came to trap you and you trapped them. They came to trick you and you tricked them. And Lord, you lay it out so plainly. We owe you it all. So on this morning, Lord God, we bow our hearts, our lives, and we lay down, Lord, before you everything that we have and that we are. And we call you king. In Jesus' name we pray this, amen.